Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, Antioch. How are we? Good. Uh, Can you hear me in the back? Yes, waves over here. Good. Uh, There's three firsts for me this morning. Number one, this is the first time I've preached in person in a year and a half. And so I don't know if you're going to get like nervous energy or if I'm going to cry a lot or just get real passionate and talk fast. So maybe a little bit of all of those. Number two, this is the first time I've ever preached next to the, the river that our indigenous brothers and sisters call the Tornahooks. It means the whispering waters, the silent river. And uh, as, as this, the park has been inundated with the sound of music and song, I, it's also been inundated with the sounds, the whispers of the Tornahooks for generations. And so in, in moments throughout the rest of this morning, give yourself a an ear to what the whisper might be saying to you throughout our time together. And then the third, the third first for me really is I've never preached and had a mosh pit. And so it's all here. It's in front of us. And, uh, and if the spirit moves, then let's get together <laughs> a little bit more. Um, I come to you today as someone who's connected to an ancient movement. And it's a movement of people who have been oriented around the way of love that was embodied by the one called Jesus of Nazareth. Um, I'm coming to you today as a disciple who's on a pilgrimage that I hope to God is softening my certainty and and growing my wonder and marking my life with sacrifice. I'm coming to you today as as a neighbor, uh, a citizen of Bend who, like you, longs to be a part of ushering in the flourishing of our city. Um, I come today as a daddy of, uh, of three, and I'm cultivating three young peacemakers to understand that their faith looks like the embodied participation with God and with you in making all things new around us. Uh, I come to you as a part of the Antioch family, and I'm super excited about what's going on with this particular family. And I'm offering my RSVP for Monday right now, Amy, wherever you are, and I encourage you all to do, to do the same. But ultimately, I'm coming to you today with just a sense of anticipation, hey, because uh, we're kind of late in the day uh, compared to the movements that have been connecting all over the globe. And when the communities connect all over the globe, the spirit roams untamed, and we get to experience that in a fresh way um, here and now today. So that's how I'm coming into the space. Um, I, wonder, uh, I wonder how you're coming in. Um, I want to return just for a moment to this ancient movement that I spoke to. Uh, you, you see... Far before the imperial scholars called the early church fathers began to doctrinize Christian thinking into theology, we were a community of people who were known by the way that we loved, that we loved radically. And so lest we forget, it was in uh, the city of Antioch, our namesake in Acts chapter 11, where the the movement was called Christian for the first time. And of course, it wasn't a, a congratulatory affirmation. It was an insult, right? Because this group of people lived so sacrificially that it was ridiculous to the people who were watching. They didn't just have a regard for themselves and for their family. They had a regard for everybody who lived in the city. And so they were marked by such love that that as an insult, the community said, you're Christian, you're living like the crucified one. 
which meant that these people were not identified by some kind of system of thinking or complex doctrines or sophisticated theologies. Instead, they were marked by a way of such scandalous, remarkable, uh, subversive love that you either joined them or you despised them. And so that's where the movement begins for us. And, and, and so we understand that this community of people was not undergirded from, by some kind of new form of religion that Jesus brought. They simply believed the things that Jesus believed. Like Jesus, they believed that God was for them, for their families, for their friends, for their city, for their neighbors, for their others, and for their enemies. Like Jesus, they believed that God was restoratively at work in every corner of the cosmos. That included inside of them, inside their others, and inside their enemies. And this way, this belief in Jesus and the way of love so shaped an unconventional way of life that over time, it subverted all of the dominant religious and political systems in the strongest, most brutal empire the world had ever seen. That's the tradition that we're connected to. That's the movement that we're a part of. Friends, the way of Jesus doesn't look like the dominant religious structures of our time. And that probably includes all the forms of American Christianity. And it certainly doesn't look like the the systems of political power that we find ourselves in. The way of Jesus is a hopeful alternative. It's the third way. It's a proactive, scandalous, outrageous, unpredictable, inefficient, inclusive, irresistible contagious way of life and love that when embodied by communities of courageous people is literally making all things new here and now. Rather than a religious system built on complex doctrines and sophisticated philosophies and theologies that actually divide us and that justify our conquering impulses toward one another, Jesus has invited us into a way of life and love that heals, unites, and restores. Friends, these are the lenses through which we're going to look at the scriptures this morning. I hope that's okay with all of you. So take your device and your Bible or whatever you got in front of you, open it up to Mark chapter 4 that Medell just read. And uh, and before we dive into the scriptures today, I want to say a brief word on parables, on the kingdom of God, and on seeds. Parables, the kingdom of God, and seeds. A parable is a story. It literally means to place beside. And so this was Jesus' primary strategy for teaching. He would take the the familiar and place it beside the unfamiliar. It's like Jesus would say, you know, the the kingdom of God, the the world that God is making, it kind of looks like this. Or it's kind of coming to life like this. Or it's being ushered in by people kind of like this. One historian says that parables, the the purpose of them is to create a crisis for the listeners. Another historian says that, that parables are intended to interrupt what we think we know and then to surprise us, to shock us with something that we didn't know or maybe a truth that is hard for us to metabolize. And throughout time, uh, many of us have interpreted or understood parables differently. Some of us have understood parables in a way that actually move us toward rejection, right? It goes like this. If, if the Samaritan is the good guy in the story, then I'm out. I want nothing to do with a movement that actually affirms the humanity, dignity, and image of God in the Samaritan. Or, or it goes like this. If God is like the father that welcomes that kid, I'm out. 
I prefer my construction of a God who's far more exclusive and selective than that. Whereas others of us have interacted with the parables throughout time and it, and it moves us rather than rejection toward invitation, toward transformation, it goes something like this. If the Samaritan's the good guy in the story, then I've got a thing or two to learn about my constructed other and enemy. Or if God is anything like the father that receives that kid home, then there's hope for me. Same parable, completely different ways of dealing with them or understanding them. Parables were not meant to be solved or interpreted. They were meant to provoke. They were meant to invite transformation. And the crazy thing about parables, I mean, as I read this parable when I was 18 years old, life, my life has changed. These parables evolve and they teach us different things about who and how we follow Jesus here and today. So there's a word on parables, a brief word on the kingdom of God, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's emerging all around us, which means that when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about some time on the other side of death. We're talking about here and now, a reality that was ushered in by the baptism of Jesus. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul writes that the kingdom of God is marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. That means that the kingdom of God, and when I'm talking about righteousness or when Paul's talking about righteousness, he's not talking about correct thinking, like getting all of our answers all shored up in a really complicated equation of religion. When Paul is talking about righteousness, he's talking about justice, he said the kingdom of God means that justice reigns in the, the oppressor and the oppressed find one another as co-creating equals and usher in the world that we're both dreaming of. Peace is not some kind of tranquility for the powerful who oppress the powerless. Peace is a commitment to interdependence. It's a commitment to seeing the humanity, dignity, and image of God in ourselves, our others, and our enemies, and prioritizing the work of reconciliation at any and every cost. Joy, the great surprise is that joy is not found in the accumulation of wealth and protection of safety. Joy, according to Philippians chapter 2, is the fruit of sacrifice. Joy is only found when we give our lives away. So this kingdom of God, the one that Jesus says is at hand, it's emerging. It looks like righteousness, that's justice. It looks like peace, that's a commitment to interdependence and reconciliation and joy, which comes when we give our lives away for one another. It's real, it's tangible, it's here and now. And then in Luke chapter 17, Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom of God, it's not just surfacing around us, it's growing within us. The kingdom of God is the world that God is making all around us. It's springing to life as the kingdom of God literally begins to take root in our lives as individuals, families, and communities. So there's a little bit on kingdom. Seeds. Seeds are seemingly inconsequential vessels that carry the potential for exponential life. We'll pop that definition into the follow-up email. Seeds are seemingly inconsequential vessels that carry the potential for exponential life. The trees that we sit under right now, the DNA for these trees were all contained in the tiniest of seeds. Now, if you think about a seed, right, it's, it's the most inconvenient 
illustration, the smallest seemingly um, inconsequential illustration that Jesus could use to talk about a kingdom that people wanted to be big. Seeds, if you think about the process, we hide them in the earth and then they die and they rot. And then roots begin to form and then shoots begin to emerge up and break through the soil, right? And then over time, there's a stalk and that stalk then will eventually produce fruit. It's a slow, hidden, invasive process that many of us don't even understand. It just simply happens. And so in summary, parables are comparison stories that are intended to create crises for us invite us into transformation. The kingdom of God, that's the world that God is ushering in here and now, and it's coming to life around us and within us. Seeds are seemingly inconsequential vessels that carry the potential for exponential life. Now, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. Mark 4, We'll start with verse 26. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God, this reality marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. It's kind of like as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. But earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let's place this in the larger context of Mark chapter 4. If you look up in your scriptures, you see that the beginning of Mark chapter 4 begins with the parable of the sower, right? That's a little bit more familiar of a parable. Jesus says that that the kingdom of God is kind of like a farmer who goes out with bags of seeds and just starts throwing it because that's how they planted. And some of the seeds land on the path and it gets swept away and some of it lands in rocky soil and it takes root, but it's not deep enough in the soil, so it goes away. Some of it grows up with thorns and the thorns chokes it and kills it, but then there's the seed that falls on the good soil, And that's the seed that takes root, produces stalks, eventually produces fruit that's exponential. Later on in Mark 4, he's talking with his community. He's saying, here's what that meant. The seed is the good news. The seed is the idea that God's restorative wingspan is far more expansive and beautiful and present than any of y'all could have ever imagined. The good news is that God is so for you that I'm now here. That's the good news the, the, the soil is the soul of the individual or the community, according to Jesus. And so in, this, in, in the context, Jesus is saying that the seed, the good news that God is on restorative mission in your lives and in your society and all of the created cosmos, that's been planted inside of us. And for those of us who, so some of us can point to, like, I remember that parent, that pastor, that counselor, that friend, that mentor. I remember m- making my way through the scriptures once upon a time where the seed that God is restoratively at work and for us began to take root. Some of us don't even know when that happened. All we know is that that seed was planted inside of us. And then in the second parable, Jesus is saying it's planted inside the soul of the individual, the soul of the community. And according to the passage, we don't know how it grows. I don't know how it works. All we know is that when that seed takes root, it has a high probability of growing. 
And over time, as it grows, it begins to invade our lives. It literally overtakes the system of our lives such that the character and the ethic and the habits of our lives look fruity. And since we're talking about the kingdom of God, what's the fruit that begins to be born in our lives? Righteousness, peace, and joy. The individual who's got the kingdom of God coming up to life inside of them is someone who is growing progressively intolerant to any and every form of injustice and whose practiced way of life is merciful action. That's the person that that the kingdom of God is growing inside. The, the, The kingdom person is the person who is learning to see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in their other and enemy more accurately and is committed to the life habit of reconciliation at any and every cost. That's the life of a kingdom person. The life of a kingdom person is someone who rejects the myth that joy comes with accumulation and consumption. Instead, chooses the way of generous sacrifice. Joy marks their life, right? And so the fruity way of life in the kingdom person looks like embodied solidarity and merciful action. It looks like a commitment to reconciliation. It looks like joy despite the circumstance. And brothers and sisters, let me just say really quickly, if you can identify who these people are in our midst, do anything and everything that you can do to get close to them as often as you can. Sit with them, learn with them, learn from them, walk with them, practice your faith with them. They are the sages that for whatever reason have made the kinds of decisions to allow the seeds of the kingdom of God to come to life in their lives. Now, in the, in the parable, it doesn't seem, I mean, there's this emphasis on like the farmer plants, the, the seeds spring to life, nobody knows how. And, and, and like an unpredictable amount of time. So while we can't make the seeds spring to life and produce fruit, I think we can cultivate the soil of our souls. I think that's how we collaborate with the divine. How do we as a busy people participate with the divine in growing the kingdom within? Let me offer a couple of ideas. For 2,000 years there's been a mystic tradition connected to the Christian movement, a commitment to the contemplative practices, the pace of the river, learning from the silence of the waters, positioning ourselves in a daily space where we can remember again whose we are and who we are so that we can understand what's ours to do today. The contemplative practices, they're not a means by which we seduce God's attention and affection. Rather, they're the space where our soil, the soil of our souls gets cultivated. And we remember again today, whose I am. Because if I can remember whose I am today, then I can remember whose you are. And that's going to shape my interaction with you today. Do you hear me? The contemplative practices is how we cultivate the soil of our souls. Life in community, lifelong learning in community with one another. There is intrinsic value in us gathering with one another under the authority of Jesus and exploring the scriptures together. This is a soul cultivation type of experience. But it's not just this because we can all remain anonymous if we want to, right? So the cultivation of our soul also requires vulnerable, authentic, accountable relationship. These are the types of friendships, not where we're sitting in living rooms in a post-pandemic reality, trafficking ideas back and forth. This is where we're, we're turning over every stone in our lives 
and inviting one another to see the parts that don't yet look like Jesus. That's how we cultivate the soil of our souls, in the practice of our faith, displacing ourselves into proximity with pain. That's the cultivators of our soul. These are the things that actually cause the, to- the soil to be tended, the nutrients to be introduced so that the kingdom of God, God's dream for the world, starts to grow inside of us. I can't, I can't make it go faster, but I certainly can do something in collaborating with God to tend to the soil. Now, Jesus doesn't stop with that parable he moves on. He talks about mustard seeds. And before we go there, I, I want to I just say, like, my sense is that many of us have been groomed to understand Christian faithfulness as tending to a particular garden with particular fruits and vegetables planted in perfectly straight rolls, rows. And that Christian faithfulness looks like the weeding of this garden. And the super Christians will then actually build fences around the gardens. Our role our, in terms of Christian faithfulness, our, we've convinced ourselves or maybe been groomed to believe that the most important work in front of us is to tend that little garden. Make sure the rows are perfectly straight and the right fruits and vegetables are in the garden. Make sure that the fence is all shored up. There's no holes for varmints to get in. There's nothing, it's high enough so the deer and the birds can't, right? So like we've convinced ourselves that faithfulness looks like being protective of our garden. Now, in this parable of sorts, the rows of fruits and vegetables are the theologies and the doctrines and the do's and the don'ts that are attached to the tradition. The fence represents that militant posture that we take toward other gardens and other gardeners. Now, many of us actually have this idea, or we've been groomed into the idea that not only are we supposed to be tending to our garden, but over time, we, we elevate the superiority of our garden as compared to other people's gardens. We even begin to dehumanize other gardeners and raise our fruits and vegetables up as superior, even calling theirs weeds. This cycle of certainty and arrogance and militancy is not a new phenomenon within religion. This is the very system that Jesus was groomed within. What's more, Jesus was groomed into a system that said if every one of us cultivates our garden perfectly, We will seduce God's attention and affection and then God will come and with a violent act of shock and awe, he will free us from our occupiers and oppressors. God will establish his kingdom in this place that will prioritize the flourishing of Israel's bloodline. Into that milieu, Jesus speaks this parable. And in this parable, he says, you know, the world that God is making it kind of, it's kind of like that farmer who sows mustard seeds into the fields. And over time, that mustard seed springs to life and then it grows and it becomes a tree and all the birds of the area can find refuge in its branches. Now to us, we're like, ah, that's a nice story, right? 
I can understand that. That makes a lot of sense. Sometimes seeds get planted and they grow really big. Or some of us actually have gardens and we're like, man, that one seed that got introduced kind of overtook the entire garden by accident. Here's the thing for Jesus and his people, like it's an agrarian society. They're like, uh, wait, well, hold on. A farmer planted what kind of seed? A mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is the tiniest, most insignificant seed in the entire Middle East. I've read in some places that it it takes 20,000 mustard seeds to equal one ounce. So the tiniest, most insignificant of seeds, Jesus is going, yeah, 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 it starts with that. Now, here's the other thing. A mustard seed is not clean. In a Jewish society, this is an unkosher seed. So of all the seeds that Jesus could have chosen from, Jesus says the kingdom of God, it's like the unclean seed that's introduced into a garden. Now, the reason that, uh, that Middle Eastern first century farmers would be terrified of the mustard seed is because what happens is you, you introduce the mustard seed and over time, it overtakes carefully cultivated gardens. If you do a Google search for how do you plant mustard, what you'll find is caution after caution that you plant it and then you harvest it before it comes to seed. Before if it, because if it comes to seed, then it will drop its seeds in such volume that before long, you will have an uncontrollable movement of mustard on your hands. Jesus says, yeah, the kingdom of God, the thing that I'm doing, God's dream for the world, the, the world that's marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a mustard seed that's planted in carefully cultivated gardens. It's like an invisible living system that slowly, slowly overtakes the entire garden. Now, I've been listening in on the conversation here at Antioch for the past year and a half very, very carefully. Even in the last week, I've heard some remarkable stories of seeds being dropped into the soil of our context. It's, it's the mother, it's the more seasoned mother who observes another mother having a hard time walking through a hard season with a child and then drawing near that mama and accompanying her, letting her know that she's not alone supporting her along the way as she shepherds and cultivates the the soul of this young kid. It's the high school senior who gives of her time in the midst of an insane schedule for her to accompany middle school girls as they're journeying in their formation of identity and faith, understanding of mission and what this story is all about. It's it's um, It's the medical professional who works with our houseless community and gives selflessly to that community, but then begins to recognize, ah, there's some divisions between the houseless community and local organizers and city leaders. And she begins to very quietly tend to these relationships because we actually need to work together. It's the seeds of the kingdom dropping. It's that, it's that, um, it's that guy who, 
can't stay in, he's constantly going in and out of prison, but finally finds some purpose as he begins to accompany other recently released prisoners, accompanying them, walking shoulder to shoulder with them. These seeds of the kingdom are beginning to spring to life. It's, it's the undocumented mother who offered us unprecedented hospitality. And it changed our understanding of the undocumented community and what hospitality is all about. Seeds are dropping. Seeds of the kingdom, they're dropping all around us. These are just stories that I'm telling from within the Antioch family. And where there's these five or six, there's a hundred more that have happened in the last couple of days. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a viral contagious movement that when introduced into the system, slowly, nonviolently, subversively overtakes the entire system. I want to close how I began reflecting on this movement that we're a part of. I said this, I said, friends, the way of Jesus doesn't look like the dominant religious systems of our day. It in no way reflects the political powers of our time. The way of Jesus is the hopeful alternative. It's the third way. It's a provocative, scandalous, outrageous, unpredictable, inefficient, inclusive, irresistible, contagious, and exponential way of life and love that when embodied by communities of courageous folk are making all things new. God says that the kingdom of God is like seeds and weeds. It's bursting to life inside of us and around us and we can be a part of it if we want to. It's God's words for us this morning.